The thing about grace is that it's always just a little bit inappropriate, just a little scandalous. I want to look at a few passages this morning. To begin with, let's read from Mark chapter 5, a verse 25, basically, 24-25. A large crowd followed and pressed around him, and a woman was there who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years. She had suffered a great deal under the care of many doctors and had spent all that she had. Yet she wasn't getting any better, but she grew worse. When she heard about Jesus, she came up behind him in the crowd and touched his cloak, because she thought, if I just touch his clothes, I will be healed. Immediately her bleeding stopped and she felt in her body that she was freed from her suffering. At once Jesus realized that power had gone out from him. He turned around in the crowd and asked, who touched my clothes? You see the people crowding against you, his disciples answered, and yet you can ask, who touched me? But Jesus kept looking around to see who had done it. Then the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came and fell at his feet, and trembling with fear, told him the whole truth. He said to her, Daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace and be freed from your suffering. Jesus, at this point in his ministry, is people noticing him. Jairus, who is the head of the synagogue, one of the synagogue rulers, has called him because his daughter is ill. He wants Jesus to come and, and minister to her healing. And in his process of going here, there is this woman. And it says, when she heard about Jesus. Now, what did she hear about him? You know, in that culture, when you had been bleeding for 12 years, you were ceremonial, ceremonially unclean. And if you touched anybody around you, they were also unclean. And everyone around in her world would have been unclean. And technically, she could have been really put aside for doing that. She was completely wrong in what she did. She contaminates the people who are in the crowd. And then she sneaks up to Jesus and she touches him and contaminates him as well. Now, in those days, a woman just didn't touch a man, let alone out open in public, and it was really inappropriate for her, especially as Jesus was regarded as a holy man, a rabbi. Now, this woman had been going through an enormous amount of emotional friction. She'd been beaten down over 12 years. You can imagine what it was like to be passed from one doctor to the next, and instead of getting better, she just kept getting worse. The question is, do you think she had any kind of feelings about how God looked at her? Do you think she expected good things to come from God? And yet she hears about Jesus and she comes up and she does something that is completely and utterly inappropriate. And because of what she does, Jesus is delayed. And in the delay, the news comes from Jairus's uh, entourage that the daughter that Jesus was going to pray for has subsequently died. It's about as wrong as you can get. But she had heard about Jesus, and somehow she decided to have a go. Now, we're not privy to all the inner workings and all the struggles of this woman. But she decided that if she could just touch his cloak. Now, what made her think that if she could just touch part of his garments, not even 
have him speak to her, not even have him pray for her, not even speak to him directly. You know, what kind of healing model is that? But what made her think that this crazy behavior would in any way work? She heard about Jesus. And so, obviously the question is, what had she heard? Now, what was it that she had decided? What was it about Jesus in terms of her healing? But whatever it was, this is what it meant to her. She was willing to risk everything. That's how she'd come to a place, perhaps of desperation, who knows, but she'd come to this place where she was willing to risk uh, public shame in order to just touch his clothes. Now, we know what happened. Jesus stops in his tracks and he's, he basically says, something significant has happened. Who did that? And the disciples essentially say to him, are you crazy? Look at the crowd. Look at how many people are pressing in around you. Look at the throng of people who are bustling all along. But she comes, and it says she comes trembling in fear. She knows what she's done is inappropriate. And she's terrified. And so she tells him the whole truth. Now, that's quite significant. And he says, daughter, your faith has healed you. Well, let's at least say that's the gentle version. The sort of solemn, soft um, church kind of daughter, your faith has healed you. No, you know, I, I imagine the scene where Jesus has been teaching and trying to explain to people what faith looks like. I, I wonder whether he doesn't, he's way more robust in the way that he says it. That's amazing. That's what I've been talking about. That's what I really mean, having a go. That is faith. Did you guys all see this? Wow, I love it. He says, you go in peace, my dear. And he says, make way for her, make way for her. Now, that's my version of it. But I think it was that kind of exuberance. Here Jesus has been t telling them, this is what it looks like. The kingdom of heaven looks like this. And here is a woman who risks because she's at her wit's end. And Jesus says, that's what I want. That's what we're looking for. Now, grace often bends our minds. Almost nobody understands grace totally. It's entirely foreign in the kind of world that we live. And it's extraordinarily difficult for us when we are like the Pharisees, we've become so religious that we understand cause and effect. And we don't know why, but grace somehow seems that it should be offensive to God. So, what is this grace? Grace, if we're going to answer honestly, seems to be often something that doesn't take sin seriously enough. It's like we're saying, we're not really serious about sin if we can just... Um, be experiencing God's grace in this kind of way. And it's difficult. It's different. It's what got Jesus killed. The, the religious leaders were the ones who actually were the 
ones who provoked the killing of Jesus. And it was because he had offended them in so many different ways. They were convinced that he didn't take the law or sin or all the stuff that they held dear seriously. He was misleading the people. Uh, he was being too licentious. He was hanging out with the wrong people, sinners and tax collectors and prostitutes. He was partying. He was called a, a wine drinker and a glutton. This guy can't possibly honoring, be honoring God, is what the religious leaders, the, the Pharisees and Sadducees were saying. We've got to do something about it. Let's stop him. You see, we're often like them. For us, often, grace seems that it's such an offense that it can't possibly be right. Interestingly, though, uh, someone's added all this up, and in the Gospels, apparently, there are about 64 occasions where Jesus has um, tense interrogations or maybe even arguments with people, and 62, I think, out of the 64, someone has added, are with religious leaders. See, the kingdom of God is not understandable both on the side of the world but also on the side of the religious leaders who have a particular perception about how it ought to be. And it hinges essentially around this issue of grace. Grace is perhaps the most foreign thing in our world and it is perhaps the most important thing that God gives to us and that we are called to give in return. Jesus' original kingdom message was a message of grace. In Mark 1 verse 5 where it says, Change your thinking. Repent. Turn around. Change your thinking. Believe the good news. The kingdom of heaven is here. It's at hand. It's with us. He's saying the kingdom is right here in our midst in this very moment. The good news is um, means that God is here. God is here to, to set us free. Religious thinking was that God was distant. He was far away. He had his arms folded metaphorically and that he was disapproving of the way that things were going and how we were living. And if we lived right, did the right things, um, kept enough rules and laws, then he would nod his head and maybe draw close. What Jesus came to say was, no, you've got it all wrong. He's already with us. Change your way of thinking. And I'm saying to you today, change your way of thinking. God is with us. He's already here. Now, when we say that God has come, we are essentially coming to the place where we are seeing the shift between what is fundamentally an Old Testament way of looking at it and a New Testament way in terms of grace. The religious way of looking at things is that we have to appease God to experience Him. We do lots of things like keeping laws and doing the right thing, and God may come close. What grace keeps saying to us is that, no, God already loves you. He already loves you unreservedly. He's already come to be with you, and He's going to show you if you will just accept it. Which is why that woman, the story of the woman who comes and touches the hem of his garment is so important. And so I'm just going to paraphrase the way that we often hear the message of Jesus because you must think of whether this is true or false. It normally comes like this. God is a holy God. 
and humankind has fallen into sin and has become unholy. And God in his holiness can't approach us in our unholiness and dirtiness. There has become this big gap. And Jesus died in order to justify us, to clothe us with righteousness, so that God can come and be with us. True or false? Well, the problem with that is that it's partly true, but there's an element that is false. And almost true is not good enough, because it can be destructive. God is not fussy. Let me say that again. God is not fussy. It's not true that because we have sinned, or we are dirty, or fallen, or broken, that God cannot approach us. That's false. The mission of Jesus, the purpose for Jesus' coming, the, the reason his Father sent him, was all about this. God says to us, and I'm just going to sort of uh, make my own words around this, but essentially what God says is this. You think I can't come to you because you are dirty, sinful, or disqualified. Really? Oh, I'll come, and I'll come, I'll do one better. I will put on your dirty, broken, diseased humanity. I'll become sin in your place. And I'll hug the least and the worst and hang out with you while I'm there. That's essentially the mission of Jesus. His incarnation is that God says, you know what, in order for you to understand how much I love you and what my, uh, the nature of God's grace and his forgiveness is, he says, I'll come and be with you. I'll actually absorb and take on all of the stuff. I will be with you. God isn't afraid of getting dirty. He isn't afraid of being identified with us. See, in the Old Testament, if you gathered sticks on a Sunday, on a Sabbath, you could get stoned to death. Um, and the, the picture that it's giving is that God is very serious about these rules. Um, but you have to appreciate the context. Now, Let's just talk about this for a second. The people of God were very young in their faith. So when they come out of um, Egypt, um, their relationship with God as a people is very um, embryonic. It's just right at the very beginning stages. So if we take the image of a parent, when my girls were little, two and three, and we would be walking along, um, when we were going to cross the road, they couldn't just run and do what they liked. We held their hands and we crossed the road with them. And if they went to run towards the road, we would grab them or yell and say, stop, whatever it was. But we took fairly strict, strong measures and we had very rigid things that we kept in place. Because they were two. But when they grew up, I taught them to drive. We, they used our car, they, they, they went all over the road. What had changed? Well, nothing really. I was being consistent, I was being entirely consistent with my children. It may have seemed like the rules changed in that I didn't let them get anywhere near the road and then later on I gave them keys and they could ride all over it. But what had happened was, I was... I was protecting them. I was empowering them to grow up and mature. I was consistent. I remained the same. I was being the parent 
who watched over and protected and provided for my daughters. And once we understand the principle behind something, you can understand how the story can change. So how does the story change in terms of Jesus and, and us is that we grow up in faith. And we don't need to uh, understand things in terms of the way that um, the people were scared to go and pick up sticks on the Sabbath. Jesus says to the people who are watching as their disciples have walked through the field on the Sabbath and have been taking stuff and eating it. And he says, essentially paraphrasing, he says, don't kill the disciples for picking grain on the Sabbath. Because the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. The principle remained the same. It's all about God's providing for and um, caring for and nurturing his people to, to fullness of faith and grace. And so um, when, when there is that sense of um, beginning, we, we begin to understand how things work. But God is not fussy. The real gospel says, hey, God's here. He loves you. He's forgiven you. Just accept it. You see, in some quarters, the explanation of the cross is that Jesus died on the cross um, and it's time for you to get serious about your sin. Um, but really, in truth, what it is, is that God would rather die than let your sins be a big issue between us. Your sin is not the issue between you and God. It doesn't mean that we don't have to take sin seriously. Sin makes us weak. Sin makes us unhealthy. It's, it makes us stupid. Um, Paul writes the, the Ephesians and he says, Dark, it darkens the understanding of your mind. Sin is like an addiction. It messes up your life. But sin doesn't keep God away from you. Sin draws you away from God. And that's entirely different. And I'll say that again. Sin doesn't keep God away from you. It draws you away from God. God is never put off. By your sin. So turn around. Change your mind. The good news is that he's right here now at this moment. That's what grace is. The future is open. It's clean. It's the emphasis that we've got to get. And that's what we need to understand. That God would rather die than let your sin be a big issue between us. Let me say that again. God would rather die then let your sin be an issue between you and God. Now, as I said, sin can do serious damage and we need to get rid of it. But it's also important to understand that sin does not keep God from you. And then, in the end, we're not going to be judged on our sin. It's not the basis of whether you are in and out of eternity, but on our trust whether or not we trust God and put our faith in Him. If we trust God, then whether or not we mess up, whether we are uh, doing things wrong or getting things wrong, which we can continually do, when we are in Him, when we, when we know who He is, we are safe in Him. We are judged by our trust level, not by our sin level. And so the question is, can you do anything you want and God forgives you. And I'm going to say yes. 
we can we can we do not so we can but we do not repent from sin so that we can be forgiven we do not repent from sin let me say that again we do not repent from sin so that we can be forgiven we repent from sin because God has already forgiven us and that's the essence if you like of what happens with David in Psalm 51 it's not he comes to the realization that God still loves him still cares for him sends the prophet in order to to arrest his attention what we need to understand is that we are forgiven we are loved God is with us yes we mess up and we sin all of that can be forgiven it is already forgiven we just have to trust God that it's true and that's in many senses quite scandalous and inappropriate and so grace is a challenging thing your sin is not the issue with you and God God only mentions it to convince you of his generosity and his grace and hopefully that will help you to change your mind and understand the good news that's what mark 1 verse 5 is 15 is is that it's good news god is with us the kingdom of heaven is in the midst of the people of god in john chapter 8 there's a very dramatic incident and i just want to touch on it briefly as we come to a close there is a woman who is caught red-handed in the act of adultery and we're not going to get into how and why and all that sort of stuff but in terms of the law she could be stoned and he, they bring this woman to jesus it's john chapter 8 and the first 11 or 12 verses they bring this woman to jesus and they say to him they're not really interested in her they say to him what are you going to do about this they were challenging jesus on his attitude of being too lax and how was he going to deal with this this flagrant violation of the law what was going to be the issue how would he he couldn't wiggle out of this one surely and we know the story about how jesus bends down and writes in the sand and he says um, um, if anyone of you is without sin let him be the first to throw a stone at her he's talking to the religious leaders you got no sin then you throw the first stone and he stooped and wrote down and wrote on the ground and over a period of time these people start to drift away and he looks up and they've gone and he says to the woman where are they has no one condemned you and she says no one sir and he says neither do i condemn you Go now and leave your life of sin. Now leave your life of sin. Why? Because essentially it's causing you a few problems. And he's basically saying to her, carry on like that and you're going to be in trouble again because I might not be around. Essentially he's saying to you, it, it messes you up. Don't do it. Stop it. Leave that stuff behind. It's, it's unhealthy. It causes damage that's true but sin is not going to be a big issue between you and Jesus fundamentally what he's saying is I don't have a problem go but don't do it anymore you may perhaps at this stage it's appropriate to say you may have stuff that you know is not right you know that God doesn't want you to do it 
stop it. It's, it's messing you up. Don't do it. We all know that. We all know stuff that we're doing that is unhealthy in terms of our lives. Not just in terms of our physical lives, but our relationships and just morally and in terms of what God has called us to. It's not right. Stop it. Don't do it. But it doesn't, it doesn't fundamentally change God's presence with you, that he's with you. But he's saying to you, turn your life around, change your mind, think differently about this thing. And that's why grace is, is it feels so inappropriate and scandalous. It's because it sets us free to live a life that is full and free. Now, in Mark chapter 2, there's another, another incident that I just want to touch on briefly. It's about a man whose friends um, bring him to Jesus. There's a huge crowd. Jesus is chatting inside someone's house, and they can't get in because he's paralyzed, and they're carrying him on some sort of bed or stretcher. So they um, make a huge hole in the roof and lower him in because they're so concerned about Jesus bringing healing to their friend. Now, the question in this whole thing is, do you have to repent in order for your sins to be forgiven? And if you look at this story in Mark chapter 2, um, it, it kind of initiates what is, in a sense, a ministry that we have for each other. These four friends bring this man to Jesus. He's paralyzed. They lower him through the roof. He hasn't said a single thing. He himself hasn't. And Jesus says to him, your sins are forgiven. That is totally inappropriate and scandalous for everybody who's listening. And so the Pharisees in verse 6 and 7 who were sitting there, they think to themselves, why does this fellow talk like this? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And Jesus, and this is the most remarkable thing, immediately in his spirit, Jesus knows what they're thinking in their hearts. And he says to them, why are you thinking these things? Now, just to go back to what I said earlier on, just in chapter 1, verse 15, the time has come, he says, the kingdom of God is near. Repent, change your mind, and believe the good news. That's what we started out with. This is just a little while later, and Jesus is saying, why are you thinking these things? Which is easier for you to say to the paralytic? Your sins are forgiven or to say, get up, take your mat and walk. But so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I tell you, take up your mat, get, get up and go home. At the end of John's Gospel, there is the fabulous uh, moment where Jesus comes and he appears to the disciples and they are um, all very excited and uh, he says uh, peace be with you and he shows them his hands and his side and then in verse 22 and 23 we have this peace be with you as the father has sent me I am sending you and with that he breathed on them and said receive the holy spirit if you forgive one another, anyone, if, let me say that again. If you forgive anyone his sins, they are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. Need to just think about that for a minute. 
or just to let it soak into us. He says, as the Father sent me, I'm sending you. And then he says, okay, here's the Holy Spirit. He gives them, he gifts them, he breathes on them. There is this um, moment where they, there's this sort of parabolic thing of him breathing on them and they receive the Holy Spirit. What does he say immediately after that? If you forgive anyone his sins, they are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. He's putting the whole question of forgiveness and grace right at center stage of what the disciples are called to do and to be in the life that they are going to live as they uh, live in the power of God's Spirit. He breathes on them. He says to them, go and forgive people. Now, I just want to suggest that we better get out there and be agents of forgiveness and grace. That's what we have to give. We, as forgiven people, we need to live in a way that is forgiven, that is um, free and full of grace. We are forgiven people. And so the church must be a place where forgiveness is a baseline, where we are willing to live with grace for the broken people of this world. Give away forgiveness and love and kindness. Inappropriate generosity, I suppose one could call it. It offends the sensibilities. It's about not having to pay for what we've done. It's that sense of righteousness. It's God's righteousness given to us. And that's what is so glorious about grace. It's a foreign thing. It's not measuring. It's not performing. It's not doing stuff to be accepted. It's not following a few rules and making sure that we do things that are right. Yes, all of that is possibly necessary. It's saying, hold on a second, you're already fine. You're already free. You are already forgiven. You have God's grace. And he breathes his spirit on us and says, now get on with it. Yes, you have to leave your sin behind. Don't go and do it again. But... It's the grace that is the important thing.